So I thank you and I praise you above all things. Amen. All right, today we're going to dive into uh, the series we've been in, in Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Uh, And it's been a pretty awesome series so far, I would say. I hope you agree with me. Uh, It's been uh, challenging. It's been definitely interesting. Uh, And it's been a lot of topics and subjects that you normally don't really hear about uh, in church all the time. And so I've been very thankful for Pastor Marco and all that he's really been preaching on and how he's been faithful to the text uh, throughout this. And And I'm looking forward to today because today we see that the text actually changes a little bit from what it's been up to this point. Up to this point, what we see is kind of this this poetic idealism of what relationship and marriage is and kind of how they love on each other, they delight in each other and move forward in their relationship. And today we actually see conflict entering into the marriage. And so we go from more of an idealistic viewpoint in the poem to a very realistic viewpoint. And I want to uh, really focus on for just a second that this is a poem. Like this is, this is poetry. That means that this is not a play-by-play. You can't read it and think of it in terms as this is one event that happened and this is the recording of it. Rather, this is poetry expressing and conveying an idea, multiple situations, uh, the way that you know, things work out between them within their marriage. And so keep that in mind as we go through this because if you think of it as a play-by-play, and this is throughout all of Song of Songs, then it doesn't really make sense sometimes because certain parts of the poem are out of order chronologically. In this one specifically, you'll see that there's sometimes a jump from one thing to another. And so just remember, this is a poem, and so it's conveying emotion, it's conveying situations as a whole, so that we can have an idea of what the main point is. And what we're going to see is that through the beginning of this passage, we have a division happen between husband and wife. There's a separation, an alienation from each other because of self-centered behavior. And by the end, we'll see that they are drawn back to a place of intimacy. And this is really conveying that journey from the beginning to the end, from a place of alienation to a place of intimacy. And what that looks like for them and how they went about it, and emotionally what that means for their relationship. And this... As I was preparing for this, it, it really challenged me personally. I, I've been married for over six years, and so, thank you. I'm very proud of that. <laughs> and so we, uh, we've been married for, you know, not forever, but not quite newlyweds either. And so a lot of stuff that I was diving into in this text, man, it just kept hitting me over and over and over, where I was realizing, man, I've been failing in this. I've sinned against my wife and didn't even realize it. And so I actually had to go to her and apologize this week for some failings that I recognized within myself and the way that I have been a husband to her. And so I know that there's going to be things in here that's just going to hit on our heartstrings. It's going to be things that apply to all of us. Uh, And hopefully by the end, you won't think too poorly of me as I share some of these experiences. But this, uh, this poem is conveyed in the context of marriage, but it doesn't stop with marriage in the sense that what is being presented, the main idea, actually applies to every single relationship that you have. 
And it's going to also apply to the relationship that you have with God. Because the main idea is this, that self-centered attitudes and behaviors break down relationship. But self-sacrifice is what brings us back to a place of intimacy. And so no matter what uh, your situation is, whether you're married or you're not, whether you're a believer, whether you're not, whether you know God or not, keep that in the back of your mind as we go through today, as we go through this passage, that this idea, though conveyed oftentimes, and you'll see through the context of marriage, it can apply to your situation no matter where you're at, no matter what your status is. So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, read through Song of Solomon 5, 2 through 6, 3, because it is a poem, and so I believe it's important to read it from beginning to end in this, in this passage so that you get the idea of what it was supposed to convey. And then what we'll do is actually break it down in three sections as we go through the rest of this morning. And, but first, I'm going to just read it through. <coughs> we'll pray, and then we'll dive into our time. So Song of Solomon 5, verse 2 says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers with liquid myrrh on the hands of the on the handles of the bolt, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil. Those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. And the others speak, what is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? She continues, my beloved is radiant and ruddy. Distinguished among 10,000, his head is of the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And they respond, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women. Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? And she answers, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Lord, I thank you so much for this passage. I thank you for this book, this opportunity for us to dive into what your word says about marriage, about relationships, about our own uh, self-centered attitudes and behaviors that often just uh, plague us. So God, I ask that you, uh, you speak to us in this, in this time, that your word resonates within us, that you soften our hearts so that we can understand it and that we can move forward in a way where we can glorify you the most. 
I ask that I can submit myself to you fully in this moment, Holy Spirit, so that you are the one that speaks, not me. So I thank you and I praise you, amen. And so what we're gonna do is focus on, at first, the first part of that passage, uh, verses two through six. And so this is the part where it says, I slept, but my heart was awake. So basically, I mean, she's in that in-between stage where she's kind of asleep, she's laying in bed, but she's kind of awake at the same time. I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about. You know that state where every little sound, you like jerk awake and you don't know what to do with it, right? She's in this place. And then a sound, she jerks awake, my beloved is knocking. And so what we can see from this is that basically she's laying in bed and it's very late at night. Maybe he was supposed to come home earlier. Maybe she was waiting up for him. We don't really know. But basically, it's very late, and she's almost asleep, and he comes and starts making noises and wakes her up. And he says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. This is actually a point in this entire, uh, this entire book where he compliments her, uses terms of endearment more than any other time. And so basically, he's knocking on the door saying, I know it's late. I know that you uh, maybe waited for me and now you're asleep, but babe, please let me in. You're so pretty, you're so beautiful, I love you so much. Let me in, I wanna have intimacy with you. He's basically saying, I wanna come in and have sex with you as my wife. And she, her response is, uh, It's kind of funny, actually. She says, uh, I'm already dressed for bed. I've already washed myself. I'm here, I'm asleep. You were supposed to be home hours ago. I don't think so. (laughs) That's her response to this. And so what we see is then he, uh, he says something because all of a sudden we have a change. She says, my beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. And so her first reaction is, no, I'm not gonna do that. You, you lost your moment. And then there's some kind of change. And once again, this is not a play-by-play. This is poetic literature. And so we see that there's a change in heart from her side. And so she says, okay, I realize that I do want to be with you. I do want to be intimate. But it takes a while because her first reaction is, man, I'm offended. You were very insensitive toward me. You kept me waiting for you. You think you can be out all night and then just expect to come home and we're gonna have sex? Like that's her reaction. And then we see that she does change. And so she gets up and she goes to the door and it talks about how her hands are covered in myrrh. Basically she put on her essential oils or perfume. She made herself smell real nice, ready to go. She opens the door, bro's gone. He's left. So he reacts then to her saying, okay, fine, whatever. I'm not going to wait for you. I'm not going to, you know, try to pursue this any longer. I'm out. So he, he didn't like try to force himself or break down the door or anything like that. He just said, I'm not going to wait for you. I'm going to just head on out. And so that's how this uh, passage opens. We see both of them doing a few things where they're just kind of going back and forth and kind of just uh, hurting each other a little bit, here and there. And we see this so often in, in our lives. If you're married, you know that uh, your spouse is going to offend you or hurt you or slight you in some way that uh, most of the time they don't even intend. And sometimes it's because, 
it's because they're just being insensitive. And remember, this, this is the context of marriage here, but if, like I said, you're thinking of this in the context of your life and where you're at, you know that this is also true no matter what relationship you're talking about, where you are being slighted by somebody or you are being offended by them and your reaction is to spit back, is to respond in kind, and then they respond in kind. And then what happens? It just snowballs, doesn't it? Whether it's a big thing or a small thing. And so what we see here is that an alienation occurs between the two, husband and wife, because they're both focused on themselves. They've completely disregarded the other's feelings. He comes home super late and he completely disregards the fact that she's probably asleep and he immediately starts demanding intimacy. She disregards his feelings of, hey, maybe he was out working all night and comes home and just wants to feel loved by his wife. And her first response is, that's an inconvenience for me. I'm already ready for bed, laying in bed. And then we see that she does come around to, okay, I do want some intimacy with you. And he's already bolted because he's like, I'm not going to wait for you. I'm not getting the gratification that I want right now. Both of them are just going back and forth, hitting on each other and really, really making the situation much worse than it needed to be. Because they both act out of areas uh, where they're not thinking of the other. They're thinking of themselves pretty much exclusively. And we do this so often in our relationships. So what we see is three things, three reasons for this, uh, this separation to occur. Number one is they were just insensitive to each other. And our response to somebody being insensitive to us is oftentimes, fine, I'm going to be insensitive right back. I'm going to get back at them for this. One of those uh, examples from my own marriage that I promised you, uh, I realized this week that whenever I felt slighted by Nicole in some way, even if I knew she didn't mean it, or even if it wasn't you know, malicious or anything like that, if I felt offended or hurt, then I would emotionally and physically distance myself from her. And so one clear example of this is at night when we're in bed, uh, I often will fall asleep pretty much every single night and I'll like put a hand on her or like cuddle up next to her because uh, physical touch is big for my expressions of love. Like that's, that's a big thing for me. And so when I do that, basically I'm telling her, hey, I, I love you, I'm here, I care for you, um, and, and that's it. I realize that when I'm mad at her or I'm frustrated with her or I feel offended, that I will make it a point to not touch her at all in the middle of the night, like at all. I'll go all the way to the side of my bed, turn over, face the wall, and I'm just like, don't even get close to me. <laughs> and basically what I'm doing is two things. I am, one, trying to protect myself because I feel hurt which on the surface doesn't sound that bad, does it? But the focus is still on me. But I realize that too, I'm trying to punish her in some way for offending me. I'm trying to make her know that I'm mad at her. 
And sometimes she doesn't even know that I am until I start acting out my emotions. And that right there definitely is very self-centered. It's just revenge. That's all it is. It's just revenge. And so I had to go to her and apologize for this because, I mean, one, I didn't even realize exactly what I was doing. It was kind of just my natural response. And so I guess my question to you is, what's your natural response when you feel offended by somebody, whether it's your wife, a friend, your husband? But especially in marriage, I know that we are spending a lot of time together, and so she knows every little detail about what's going on. She knows when my mood changes. She knows when just the look on my face is different. And I take advantage of that so that she knows that I'm mad at her. I'm just responding in kind because maybe she was insensitive towards something. Maybe she did sin against me. I'll admit most of the time not. Most of the time it's just me. But my reaction is so self-centered. It is so focused on myself and my emotional response at the time that all I'm doing then is trying to intentionally hurt the person who's supposed to be the most important to me in this world. And that is not a reaction that we should have. But that's what we see in this passage too. That's what they're doing to each other. And those moments of insensitivity, those moments where we're just kind of hitting back at each other, what it does is results in the second thing we see, and that's resentment. Resentment becomes uh, commonplace within our hearts. I mean, you can imagine the situation that it spells out in this, in this uh, passage where she's just thinking, I can't believe he's asking this of me right now. And he's thinking, I can't believe she won't open the door. We're married. This is my bedroom. Like they both automatically get offended. They both think in terms of, man, I deserve this. This is owed to me. And so what happens when, that, when that's happening in you? Man, your heart gets a little bit harder and you start thinking in terms of, man, they have wronged me. I'm going to hold on to that. I'm going to resent this a little bit. And resentment, it just builds into bitterness, hatred. Resentment is the thing that's going to tear your marriage apart. And it doesn't have to be big things. Oftentimes the focus is on uh, these really large issues, or the th- you know, these big things that happen within your marriage or your relationships. And the truth is that most often what tears it apart are the little things at first. It's the tiny little things that happen throughout the day that offend you, you feel like you've been slighted, sinned against, and you hold on to it. And you say it's not a big deal, but you never deal with it. And then next time something similar happens, you say, ah, that happened back then too. Now I got this one. And then when it happens again, you start adding it. That pile begins to grow. See, marriage is supposed to be forever, right? For your entire life. Over the course of six years, I can say that a lot of those little things have grown into big piles if we didn't deal with it. Can you imagine what it'd be like if you were married for 40 years? 50 years? Like these things build up. 
You wonder why in our society, in our culture today, why so many people get divorces so early within their marriages. It's because it doesn't take long to build these piles high. You can be married just for a year. That's a lot of time, a lot of hours, a lot of days in that year where all these little things continue to grow higher and higher and higher. And if you don't deal with it, if you don't have a healthy way to deal with those things within your marriage or within your relationships in general, then bitterness is going to well up within you and you're going to find that you don't want to be with them anymore. You're going to find that, that your marriage has fallen apart completely and you're sitting there thinking, how this happened? Nothing big happened. We didn't cheat on each other. We didn't do anything like this. And yet, our marriage is in shambles because I don't want to be with them anymore. They don't want to be with me. It's because we've allowed bitterness and resentment to grow in our hearts. Because what we're doing is we're focusing on ourselves. We're never thinking in terms of the other person. There is no us. It's always a me. Me. And so resentment grows. And both being insensitive to each other and allowing resentment to grow is mainly the result of unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. See, our expectations color every relationship that we have, especially in marriage. And, and I know in our marriage, we had to deal with a lot of these things. And oftentimes we talk about the big expectations, which are important and need to be talked about. You know, hey, do you wanna have kids? Do you expect to have kids? Do you expect not to have kids? Do you expect to, you know, always live in the same location? Are you cool with moving? Uh, how do you expect love to be expressed to you? Like these are big conversation pieces, especially for newlyweds or for those who are getting ready to be married. And they're important to have. And if you are married and you haven't had them, you need to have these conversations. But the truth is that we have expectations about things that we don't even recognize that we have expectations about. When we got married, one of the things that uh, I realized I had an expectation for, I didn't realize this either until like our second year of marriage. But I thought that just because we got married, that she would automatically root for my sports teams. <laughs> I didn't realize it. I didn't even think of it until we started having fights because I expected her to act a certain way on game day. And it doesn't even make sense. It's such a dumb thing to think about. And yet I went in thinking this, thinking that, oh man, I'm gonna have a partner while I watch the Michigan game and she's gonna root hard for them and, and it just doesn't make any sense, especially since Michigan's been terrible our whole marriage. <laughs> But that's an expectation that I had. And it caused conflict in our marriage years later because one, I didn't address it, I didn't recognize it, and it was very unhealthy to put that on her. We have expectations for all kinds of things. What expectations do you have in your marriages? What expectations do you have that you have put on your spouse that really should not be there? Is it something as silly as that? Or is it something like the division of chores within the home? I know for that, when we, got, 
when we went to our marriage, I thought that one of us, and I didn't say she would or I would, one of us would do all the laundry. Her thought was that we would both do our own laundry. That's a very simple thing. It's not even a problem, right? And we worked it out, but that's an, an example of just a tiny little expectation. And if we didn't deal with it, that could have been just another block in the wall that is built between us that grows into resentment. What are the unmet expectations in your marriage that are causing division to form between you two? And they may seem so dumb, but they're going to build and build and build. There has to be dialogue. There has to be a way to be able to address these things. Because his expectation in this passage, Solomon expected to be able to come home I mean, dude's king, right? Come home from a hard day of work probably, no matter what time it was, and be able to have intimate relations with his wife. Her expectation was probably that he was going to be home well before then. They both have expectations and they were not met. And what we see then is it results in insensitive behavior toward each other, which grows into resentment. Unhealthy or inaccurate expectations are going to kill your marriage, kill your relationships quicker than anything else. These are discussions that we need to have with our loved ones. Unmet expectations also apply to our relationship with God, though. What kind of expectations are you putting on God by saying, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, so because of that, I must deserve this? God, I I do everything you've told me to. I follow you. So, man, I deserve success at my job. I deserve a job. I deserve to get married. I deserve to have children. I deserve for all my family members to come to know you. I deserve for my children to have a relationship with you that I can look at and know that they're all right. I deserve to have these feelings like I belong to something. I deserve to feel like I'm happy all the time because I'm doing what you tell me to. I'm obeying scripture. So I should have these things, right? How oftentimes do we think these thoughts? How oftentimes do we put an expectation on our relationship with God saying, Because I do this, because I attend church, because I give, because I am obeying everything that I can in scripture, that I deserve to have this happen in in my life. Even if it's just something emotional, and maybe not, you know, like success or anything like that, but even just feeling like I should be happy. And the truth is that that promise is not in scripture. What of these expectations do you have that you're putting on God unfairly because your focus is completely on yourself, not on him and his glory? So all of this begs the question though, okay, fine. Well, what can we expect? What kind of expectation can I have for my wife, for my husband, for my relationships? 
What expectation can I have of God in the midst of my relationship with him? And there's really just one thing that everything boils down into. We can expect self-sacrifice. And the only reason we can expect self-sacrifice is because God has already done it perfectly for you. Ephesians 5, 1, 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, we can expect self-sacrifice from God because he has already done it. He has completed it in his work on the cross. He has sacrificed himself completely so that we may have salvation. And because of that, we are called to be imitators of him where we live a life of self-sacrifice. Sacrificing for those around us for everyone around us. In your marriage, you should sacrifice yourself for your spouse every single day. Christ has shown us the ultimate example of self-sacrifice and that grace abounds around us daily. And so we really should just act in kind. I mean, how can we not, with what he's done for you, how can you not act like that toward other people? We don't deserve any of it, and yet he gives us the opportunity to have life. And the thing with this is that it doesn't matter the way that your spouse acts toward you. This is not a thing saying that, yes, you can expect self-sacrifice, so if they don't do it, then you shouldn't do it either. You're just going back into that loop. Even if your spouse is a complete jerk to you, even if those that you're in a relationship with are complete jerks to you, then because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that means you live self-sacrificially no matter what. Because your ability to do that is not contingent on them or anyone. It only depends on Jesus Christ. And he's already completed that. And so we can stand in confidence in that and say, no matter how heartbroken I feel, no matter how hurt I feel in this moment or this situation, I can submit it to Christ and know that I can act self-sacrificially just as he has done for me when I didn't deserve it, when I did nothing but scorn him and push him aside. He did it anyway. And so we can do the same. We, we should be encouraged from that. We should be able to walk into our marriage and say, I'm going to love you no matter what. No matter what you do to me. Because I will live a life that is sacrificially involved. I'm going to reflect Christ to you every single day. And so what we see is these three things happening though between Solomon and his wife. And we see that because of it, there's a division. There's a split in their relationship. And the truth is, if just one of them acted selflessly, everything would have changed. This wouldn't have happened at all if just one of them would have acted selflessly. And so let's move forward to the next section. And so what we see is that she opens the door and he's no longer there. And then she goes out and tries to find him, 
And the watchmen find her and, act, and it says that they abuse her. They bruise her. And that she's seeking and that people come and they're asking and, and she continues to seek and then she actually goes into one of the most beautiful sections of the whole, of the whole book where she's just lavishly describing how her husband delights her in the midst of everything we just talked about. And then by the end, we see that they come to a place where their intimacy resumes. And so what do we see here? We see a journey to unification between these two. And so if you find yourself separated, alienated from your spouse, from God, from any relationship, then we see here four steps that can bring you back to a place of intimacy. The first step is we see a heart change. It says that she, uh, when he put his hand to the latch, my heart was thrilled within me. It's just one line where it goes from them kind of butting heads back and forth, and then in one line, there's a switch. There's a change. And because it's a poem, we see that it's not a play-by-play, so it's not going to give you the exact details, but this is an intentional switch, an intentional change, because what it does is reflects the fact that if we submit our lives to Christ, if we submit our lives to God, he is going to transform your heart into a new creation, something that could not have existed before, and it's going to be instantaneous. Not only that, he promises that he will continuously change your heart as you are sanctified, meaning as you become more and more like him in holiness. And so we have this promise in scripture laid out clearly here in the example of marriage that your heart can be changed. And if we look at her behavior, the bride's behavior after that moment, what she does is she prays herself up for her husband. She opens the door to invite him in. He's gone. And then she goes and looks for, for him. Even after she had just said, I'm ready for bed and I don't want to get up but we see this heart change. And so then she goes and actually pursues him outside of her home to where she's ridiculed and mocked and bruised and beaten by those outside. It's a complete change of behavior in just a moment because of her submission to God. And so what we do in our lives is we forget the importance of relationships around us. We forget the importance of our marriage We forget the importance of God because we're so focused on ourselves. It all comes back to selfish behavior, a self-centered way of thinking. And really what you're doing then is you're worshiping yourself. Acting selfishly is just making an idol out of yourself. And idolatry I mean, that's a, that's a big one in Scripture when you think about all the times that God talks about it throughout, throughout the Old Testament and the New. Being selfish is just making an idol out of yourself. And so what we need is a heart change. We need God to take our self-worshipping heart made of stone as it says in Ezekiel, and turn it into a heart of flesh that may prove the will of God in this world. And that will is that there is transformation within his people. And that transformation will renew us 
and it will bring joy to our lives. That's what that heart change does. That's what we can look forward to. That's what he promises to do if you submit yourself to him. And it's also the first step that's needed if you're going to have any kind of reconciliation or unification in your marriage, in your relationships, or if you're going to submit yourself and follow after God in your entire life. It takes a heart change. And so ask for it. Seek it. In your prayer life, ask God, change the way I view these situations. Change my heart so that it's more like yours. The second thing we see is that there's pursuit. Action is taken. She doesn't sit back and say, well, he's not there. I'm going to just chill. He'll come home eventually. No, she goes out and seeks him. And so here we see two things. We see that she privately pursues him. She opens the door. And then she publicly pursues him. She goes out and chases after him. She interacts with other people. She talks with other people. We see in verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9, that the others come into play, her friends, right? And she says to them, hey, I'm looking for him. Can you please help me find him? Their response is, what's your beloved more than any other? Why should we help you? Why are you asking this of us? We see how bad your relationship is. We saw how he treated you. Why would you ask us to help find him? Her response is to then go into a description of how much her husband delights her. Our pursuit of our spouse should be public. Meaning, when you talk to other people about your wife, about your husband, they should definitely know how much you care for them and love them. Doesn't mean you have to hide if you're in difficulties. Doesn't mean that you have to just act like everything's always just wonderful. But how often are you talking to your friends and just putting down your spouse? When you're going through something, are you acting like you just despise them with your friends? Or are you talking in a manner that says, man, we're struggling right now. We're, we're in the midst of this difficulty, but man, I know we'll be all right. I love him. I love her. They are wonderful in my sight. You ask me why I want to still pursue him? Man, because he is beautiful. He's wonderful. He is my beloved. He's my friend. That's what she says in this. Are you doing that? Or are you going to your friends and you're just complaining? And you're just tearing down your husband or your wife and saying, man, these are all the things wrong with them. These are all the things that they've done where they've failed me. These are all the things where they just are not what I thought they were. We've been married for these many years and it's just not the same person as they were when we first got together. What does your conversation with your friends say about your heart toward your spouse? 
Because what we see here is that her heart is one of love and submission and one that is saying that I'm going to love and pursue him even though he has hurt me. Because at this time, he's still gone, right? He had just left and said, I'm not going to wait for you. And he had left. He had departed. And so the conflict is not resolved completely. And yet we see her saying, it's okay. I'm going to pursue you anyway, both privately and publicly. And that's going to be uncomfortable and that's going to be inconvenient. But that's what it means to live self-sacrificially within your marriage, within any relationship that you have. Number three, we see that she rejects lies. I mean, her friends here are saying, why would, you, why would you pursue him? The guards beat and bruise her. Poetically, what they're saying is that she had to endure public scorn because of the status of their relationship, because of the difficulties they were having. We have a lot of lies that we deal with today that have to do with marriage and relationships, the way we should act toward each other, the way that we should uh, treat ourselves. Man, we hear that it should be easy if you're in love, that there is the one, that there is this, this magical moment where everything just is meant to be. We hear these things, love conquers all. There's a lot of lies in our culture today that make it seem like if you have problems or if you have struggle within your marriage or relationships that there's something wrong with it and that it shouldn't exist. And those are just lies. Because the truth is that love is a choice and love is very hard. We choose to love our spouse Marriage is a choice to commit to love. And if you find yourself in a place where you cannot commit to a lifetime with somebody, you have no business dating anybody. Love is a choice and it's hard and it's difficult, but it is wonderful. And we're not all called to marriage. I'm not going to stand here and say that, that if you desire marriage and you're not married, it may not happen. And that's okay. Paul was not married. Paul even said, if you can, be like me. Don't get married. There's nothing wrong with it. Because the truth is, the ultimate expression of love in our life should be with God. We should be devoting ourselves to him fully and primarily, whether you're married or not. And so that's going to require a rejection of all the lies around us, saying that we deserve this, we are owed this, you got to look out for number one. Our culture, especially here in America, is very self-centered. That's not the culture of Scripture. This book is basically about saying it's not about you. It's completely about God and what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for you. And so our last thing that we see is an affirmation of love. She has rejected the lies of those around her and she has affirmed her love for her husband. She goes into this long thing and basically what we see in it is three things. One, she affirms her love through sexual intimacy. I mean, she talks about just how, how much of a hunk he is, basically. And then she spends a, 
a very large portion on talking about his face, which at this time, poetically, that, that right there was the highest point of uh, sexual intimacy when it came to literature between, for, for a woman, talking about a man, was talking about how awesome his face was. And so she does that. She talks about his lips, his mouth, everything. And so we see sexual intimacy is affirmed by her. We see that her standard of beauty, which we've talked about throughout this entire series, her standard of beauty is her husband. And she affirms that they have a friendship. At the end of 16, she says, this is my beloved, the one she had just described for a long time, where she just goes on and on and on. Her friends are probably like, okay, you should stop now. But she's just going on and she's like, this is my beloved. This is my friend. Yes, they're lovers. Yes, they are married, but they are friends. And that for her is desirable. And that is so important in any marriage. You have to be friends. Nicole is my best friend. She's been my best friend for six years. And that's not going to change. In fact, it grows every single year where I know I can count on her, I can rely on her, I can come to her with the things that's going on in my head. And I know she'll be beside me. And we're different people. I know she's not going to respond the same way all the time. I mean, if you know us, we're completely different from each other in the way we think. And yet I know that she is going to care for me no matter what. There's a level of trust there. There's friendship there that goes beyond being lovers. If you are in a marriage where you guys are not friends anymore, you got to get that back. You need to be friends with your spouse. And so you may be sitting there thinking, okay, how do we do that though? We've been married for so many years, 20 years, whatever. How do we become friends again? It's just so awkward now. I mean, how do you become friends with anybody? You hang out, you do things. Go to the movies, play a board game. Go for a walk, do, do what friends do. Because you need to be a friend with your spouse. Learn to be friends again. And then affirm that over and over. And what she's doing is affirming this to herself. Solomon's not even here while she's saying all this. He can't even hear it. She's affirming this to herself. And so you need to affirm that you have a standard of beauty that is your wife. You need to affirm that you are friends with them. You need to affirm that you enjoy their company. Affirm that you want to have sexual intimacy with them to yourself and to them. But if you can't even say it to yourself, you're not going to be able to say it to them. And so you need to preach the gospel to yourself that Jesus is the one that gives you the ability to live self-sacrificially so that you can affirm that love for each other. And so what we see is that in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 6, They've just gone through this whole process where she's journeying to a place of unification with him to renew their relationship. And we see in verses two and three it's that her friends just listen to all this and their reaction goes from, why would you even want to be with this guy, 
to, okay, okay, I got it. I'm on board. How can we help you find him? And her response is, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, to gather the lilies. This is a flashback to poetic literature earlier on in in this book where it's talking about uh, sexual intimacy between Solomon and his wife and they use this language. Basically she's saying because of all of this, because of everything that's happened already, we are back to a place of intimacy. We are together again. It jumps straight there. And it says that they, I mean, right here it's bluntly saying we're, we're having sex again and we're good to go. And then it ends with I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. They go through this journey after all the hardship, after all the heartache, everything they went through, and they come to a place where their intimacy resumes. Having heart change, the pursuit of each other, rejection of all the lies that are gonna swirl around them and you, and affirming their love for each other brings them to a place of intimacy again. And what's the factor that's tying it all together? It's self-sacrifice. It's putting them above your own interest. Our inclination is to live a life looking out for number one, for yourself. That's the way we're wired. That's the way we respond to things. And we need to, we need to stop that. We need to be able to say that I understand what's happening there. I, I understand that I'm committing a, idolatry when I do that because I'm just worshiping myself because I think I'm so special and so important. It's just idolatry. When the one thing... if you you hear nothing else, hear this. The one thing is that self-worship is the enemy of intimacy. No matter what relationship you're talking about. And if you worship yourself, if you put yourself above everyone else in your life, then all intimacy is going to flee from you. And this is true in our relationship with God too. He says to have no other gods before me. And when you are all about yourself, when you're thinking only about yourself, then you're making a God out of yourself. You cannot be submitted to Jesus Christ if you are worshiping yourself. So instead, we must deny ourselves and submit to him. And so how do we do that? Well, one, we remember the gospel. We remember that Jesus Christ came to earth as a man, fully man, fully God, and he died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice to pay for your sins. All the stuff you've done in your life and will do, he has paid the price because we deserve death for it. He paid the price on the cross, dying a horrific death, and then he was resurrected three days later and ascended into heaven, which promises us that we will also have eternal life with him forever and ever in glory. That's what we remember. That's the truth of the gospel. That's what we must preach to ourselves every single day, no matter how hard it is, no matter how broken you think your marriage is, your relationships with other people, no matter how far you feel from God, if you preach that to yourself every single day, then you're gonna be able to submit yourself to Christ daily. 
Jesus says in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, and then he will be able to follow me. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for today. You are a wonderful God. I love you so much. And I ask that you continuously do a work within my life, within my heart, within my marriage. And I ask that for every single person in this room, that no matter where they find themselves, no matter what kind of situation is going on in their life, I ask that you bring them to a place where they're able to submit fully to you. Whether they're a Christian now, whether they've never been a Christian, whatever their situation may be, Christ, you're the answer. Holy Spirit, do work within us. Allow us to be able to recognize our own self-worship and be able to put that down and say, no, we are going to worship you and you alone. Lord, I thank you so much for what you've done for us. I thank you for the means of the church that we're able to worship together like this and be able to know that you are God and we can see people around us that are living lives devoted to you and take encouragement from that. When we isolate ourselves, we find ourselves in these moments of self-worship where it is all about us because we're just in our own heads. But we're blessed with a community around us where we can see that we can live life together as a family all adopted by you as sons and daughters of God where we may worship you and we may live in a way that is self-sacrificial in all aspects of our lives. Lord, I thank you for all things and I worship you. Amen. All right, offering. (laughs) We're gonna pray again. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have right now of offering, of giving, of financial means so that we may uh, express our worship in just a different way. One area of self-worship really is with our wallets. We think we deserve to have more cash. We think we deserve these things, these material things. And the truth is that everything that we have is dependent upon you. It takes all the power away from money. And so I thank you that we have the opportunity to be able to financially give the things that we work for and recognize your sovereignty over everything. And I thank you that there are amazing things happening throughout the world and throughout the church because of the generosity of your people. I thank you for the Bropes and once again, bring them up in prayer. They are a a couple that are wonderful friends, dear friends, and they love you so much and they are going through right now such a hard time. And we're able to financially just bless them because of the generosity of your people. So I thank you for that. In your name, amen.